dickheads! We have a special pink laser beam of truth beaming from all over the West Coast to your brain hole tonight. Uh, joining us for this special Hugo Award winners of the 60s episode uh, on Akanical for Leibowitz, joining us is um, author Brian Evanson. Hi. And uh, librarian Ian Duncanson, uh, also AKA Brewdog. Uh, some of you might know as I turned him into a character in my novel, uh, Vegan Revolution with Zombies. So, um, and Ian's a youth librarian in Beaverton, Oregon. So, yes. Um, so welcome guys. Um, and I just wanted to start off with, uh, what was your history with Canical for Leibowitz? When did you read it and how were you introduced to it? Brian, you want to go first? Sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I came across it by accident. I think it was a, a book my parents were, were reading and talking about when I was like 14 or 15. And, uh, uh, I picked it up, read it, uh, uh, and really liked it at the time. And then hadn't read it for years, and then maybe a year, year and a half ago, reread it and really loved it. Uh, it held up really well for me. Yeah, Ian, what's your history with Canical for Leibowitz? <laughs> well, um, I just kind of heard about it for years as a classic of science fiction, and I think my dad actually had it on his shelf, um, you know, uh, but I was always reaching for the Lovecraft or something mm -hmm. like that, Kurt Vonnegut first. Um, but yeah, my dad definitely had a copy, and so I always wanted to read it. My dad was really into, and just a, kind of obsessed with like nuclear weapons and the history of the development of them. Um, and so he had a lot of books like this. Um, and then, you know, once you invited me to do the podcast, I thought it was just a, as good as, as an excuse as any to finally read it. Right. And for me, this is my first time reading it. Canical for Leibowitz has been a book that, um, I've just known that I should read or as one was on my list for forever and just didn't get to. And then once, uh, we started doing this series. Um, you know, obviously I had to read it and, um, I thought of you, Ian, because I knew you'd been talking about it. And Brian, I wanted somebody who had a longer history with it too. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, um, since Ian and I both just read this for the first time in the last month or two. Um, so anyways, uh, this book was originally written, uh, throughout the fifties. It was a fix up novel that contained three novellas. And, uh, Walter Miller had always planned for it to be a novel, but he didn't think he could publish it as a, an entire novel by itself. As the market was in the fifties, most books had to, uh, be serialized. And this was very common, uh, books it, um, as famous as Foundation, Dune, all of those all started as serials in, uh, the magazines. And that was the case for Mechanical for Leibowitz. And, it wasn't until 1959 that he put them all three novellas together. And in 1960, it was nominated for the Hugo and it won. Obviously that's why we're doing it. So I just, um, it's really interesting. I think the context of, you know, this book was written in 1959 basically, and it really holds up today. I don't know. How did you guys feel about how it held up? Because I think it holds up amazing. Uh, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I was surprised that it, you know, I, I, there's other books that I've reread later that I loved when I was a kid and, and uh, they just did not hold up or I, the, the world had changed a lot. This one really feels to me like it holds up really well. And I found it just kind of just as good and, and just as interesting as when I first read it. 
it, it still feels really relevant in a lot of ways. Yeah, Ian, how did you, I mean, did you feel this was dated at all or when, when you read it? Um, well, actually, I was, I was telling uh, Brian before while we were working out our technical difficulties that I thought this book um, held up a lot better than some of the other 1950s sci-fi that I've read. Um, and, you know, in, in some ways kind of eerily prescient. Um, but, yeah, I, did, I didn't think it seemed that dated at all. It didn't have a lot of female characters. I did notice yeah. that. But also, um, you know, it was set among monks, so you can kind of get away with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so this book, I think, unlike... When we discuss the winners of the Hugo in many years, a lot of the discussion is, I can't believe this book won over this, right? <laughs> and, um, but if you look at the nominees this year, and it's somewhat of a strong category, or, you know, for this year, Canticle for Leibowitz won. The other nominees were The High Crusade by Paul Anderson, uh, who's a very respected science fiction writer, Rogue Moon by Algis, Bundries. I've never heard of that. Bundries, yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know anything about that one. Death World by Harry Harrison, which I have read. Uh-huh. Kind of a bonkers. Yeah. Um, kind of space opery thing. Um, and then probably the biggest competition that this book had this year was Venus Plus X by Theodore Sturgeon, which I read probably 25 years ago. So my memories on it is really hazy and I don't know how it would hold up today because the book is very much, um, Venus plus X is very much about a genderless society and the politics from my memory were pretty good. Although I don't know that was 25 years ago that I read it. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but one of the things that in researching this is I realized that I really want to go back and read Venus plus X. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but for, from what I read that, um, the, the, this was a, um, two horse race that year that the voting was very close between Venus plus X and Canical for Leibowitz, but Leibowitz pulled ahead. And the Toastmaster that year was Harlan Ellison. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, um, Harlan gave out this award. Um, and, um, you know, uh, one of the things that's really interesting too about this, uh, the, the giving of this award is when you look down the years, you see all the Toastmasters who kind of handed it out. Uh, one of the things that makes me sad is that we don't have audio of the acceptance speeches or, you know, when, when, um, I'd love to hear what Harlan had to say about the Yeah. 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 Um, so anyways, we're, we're get into the writing and publication history and then we'll just kind of freeform a little bit more. But, um, Walter Miller only wrote one novel during his lifetime, and that was A Canticle for Leibowitz. His entire output was 41 short stories, including the three that eventually became this this book, and it was all between January 1951 and August 57 is when all of those were written. Um, and that's, according to Wikipedia, that was the exact months. I don't know how they know that those were the exact months that he was writing. Um, but Miller was a very interesting person. During World War II, he served as a part of a bomber crew, uh, which a lot of authors that we read from this era did serve in World War II. I know Richard Matheson also served on a bombing crew, and uh, Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, very, very famous, famously, yes. Mm-hmm. 
And much like uh, Vonnegut was inspired by the bombing of Dresden to write Slaughterhouse-Five, Canticle for Leibowitz was very inspired by Miller being part of the bombing crew that helped destroy the 6th century Roman Catholic monastery at uh, Monte Cassino, Italy, that was founded by St. Benedict. And this experience was what inspired him to write the original short story, Canticle for Leibowitz, which is the first of the three novellas in in this book. And so I think his fascination with these order the order of monks and the the living as monks came from uh his experience of being a part of the bombing campaign. He talked about it in the few interviews that he gave uh about Canical for Leibowitz and there are not a lot of interviews. So mm-hmm. I mean, that's one thing. I mean, like when I'm reading a lot, when we're doing the research for a lot of the PKD books, there's plenty of interviews with PKD. I mean, they contradict each other all the time, but <laughs> there's plenty of interviews out there. And, um, so the, uh, second novella was originally called And the Light is Risen. And that was published also. And these short stories were published in fantasy and science fiction. Um, which is really important when you realize who his editor was. And this is a guy we talk about all the time on Dickheads. Shout out to Tony Boucher. Anthony Boucher is one of the most important editors of the 50s and 60s in science fiction. And he's often a Toastmaster for this award, too, over the course of the 60s. But Tony Boucher... Um, is known for careful uh, writing and characterization and being a, a really great steward of also, most importantly, all the ideas that John W. Campbell didn't want shit to do with. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, and I think, for example, this is a story that John W. Campbell wouldn't have touched with the 10-foot pole. Mm-hmm. And it's really important that we had Tony Boucher here to pick up a lot of these stories. And we can talk about his influence a little bit more when we get done with the writing and publication. But we do have a quote from Miller where he said, Only after I had written the first two and was working on the third did it dawn on me that this was a novel. So he did write the first two as a short story, but the third was thematically connected. He knew he was writing a novel when he wrote the third one. And I wonder how, I, I don't know, Brian, as, as a writer, do, how do you feel that, do you think that that makes sense when you consider the last novel? Does it feel like it's more directly connected? Um, yeah, what do you think? I mean, I I, uh, I hadn't thought about, I, I hadn't realized that that was the history of it, but uh, I mean, they, they, there's such a gap between all the novels and that you yeah. have you know, a 600-year gap between the three that I always have just felt like, you know, it, it kind of wraps things up nicely, but it also it, it it's its own creature at the same time. That's one thing I really like about that book is just the, the amount of time it really covers and crosses. As a first time reader, I can say that I, um, and, and, and you know, not having known how it was written either, um, I, I can say that I didn't notice it either. Like it, it felt like it just you know crossed three time periods pretty seamlessly. Mm-hmm. I thought it felt all connected. Yeah. Right. And, um, well, you know, and it's really interesting too, because, uh, if you think about it, 
Well, you know, he had more of the idea of what the theme was going to be when he was pulling it together, obviously, with the third one. But uh, I didn't, I, I'm much like Ian, I did not know that it was a fix-up novel. I did not know that they were written separately. So I just believed that they were conceived altogether. But yeah. one of the things that's, you know, well, we'll, we'll get more into the to the actual, like, the feeling of the story. But, uh so, uh, the last thing for the publishing history is that Canical for Leibowitz was the only novel that Miller published during his lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miller did not, um, you know, he changed the titles of the, uh, of, uh, each of the novellas with the, uh, once he knew that they were going to be a novel with the, um, uh, what was it, the Fiat? Como is the first one? Como, Fiat Lux, and Fiat, uh, Volen. Uh, oh god, I'm so terrible at pronouncing things. Uh, Fontuas Tana. So, Tua. Yeah. Tua, yeah. So, he didn't come up with those names until he, um, until he put it all together. Now, he did do significant revisions, so there is, it is a fix-up novel, but I think that if you were to go back to the fantasy and science fiction original short stories, they'd probably be slightly different. Uh-huh. Um, because he definitely did that. And he said, the re- his exact words were that the revisions affected, he said, these revisions affected the religious and reoccurrence themes of the stories, improving it from the magazine versions. Mm. So, um, <laughs> he definitely uh, tied the themes together a little bit better once he had, um, once he knew it was going to be a novel. And, um, so what's really interesting now is, um, I did put a little thought into, I did think about trying to track down the original short story versions and then, but then I decided I just wanted to, to leave the experience as having read the novel as it was intended when he wrote it. Also, because we're doing this as talking about the Hugo winners, um, the short stories did not win the Hugo, the novel won the Hugo, right? Yeah. And, um, and so that's that's where I felt on that. So, all right. So let's get into. Um, um, and this is where I will talk less. I promise. Uh, <laughs> uh, how you felt about each of the novels? Let's just start off with the first one um, and the setting. What really worked for me is I went into this novel cold. Um, I, I knew that it was post-apocalyptic, but I had no idea the grand scope of the story and how um, fully or how far this story would go over the number of years. And for me, it was a really cool reveal when he, when, when um, the, the character in the first story went down into the shelter. Um, I just assumed the war had just happened. And there's, uh-huh. there's a line where he just randomly lets go. He says something about these books haven't been read in 600 years. Mm-hmm. And that was a really great reveal for me. And that to me was one of my favorite moments of, of the first novel. Um, let's start with you, Brian. What were your feelings? Um, what, what are your feelings on this first part? Right. I mean, yeah, I, I think he's really economical uh, in terms of how he kind of conveys his world and gets across information about what's going on in terms of the post-apocalyptic setting and things like that. And so for, for me, the, the thing that, that, you know, often in, in bad post-apocalyptic novels, they just kind of over-explain. And here he's he's just very um, precise, I think, in terms of what he gives you and how much he gives you and 
kind of making it work. That works for me really well. Um, I think the, the reveal about, you know, the, the, what, what the documents are that they've found as well is really amazing. I think there's a kind of sharp, um, uh, sense of humor, fairly black humor kind of throughout too, which I like a lot. And then I think also he's, um, and that's, I think he's also really good just in terms of thinking about religious structures and how they kind of function and work. Um, you know, and, and it's really interesting to have this model of a religious structure that's developed in a way that, um, we can see where the misinterpretations are and, and, you know, really where it's failed to really, <laughs> um, acknowledge what was actually there. Um, and, and, and it's interesting for me to kind of think about that as a way, reading that back into kind of earlier, earlier times. But yeah, I think it's an interesting, um, section. It's, it's, uh, Works really well, and I, I think that that you know you, you're right. I think what happens when you're reading this, especially that first book, you think, "Oh, I've read the first section. Now there's going to be a second section. It's going to happen right after," and then it doesn't. And and that so you have these moments in all three sections where you're kind of reorienting yourself and figuring out what happened in 600 years and how's the world changed. Well, and it's a really bold choice to. Um you know, kind of do away with a, uh, a standard narrative um, movement of time, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it doesn't have a kind of central character exactly in the same way, even though, you know, characters that appear in the first are, are kind of referred to in, in, in later ones. But yeah, so it, it has, you know, structurally it's it's different than it, than, than we usually think of a novel as being. Mm-hmm. So, Ian, um, what were your uh, what were your feelings when you first read this? Did you realize that that it was going to be su- such a time spanning story, or how quickly did that occur to you, for you? No, no, you know, I, I actually I didn't realize that, and then um, I, I kind of liked at the beginning, like the way there was a sort of um, a mystery about uh, you know he's, he's down here in this uh, this bomb shelter, kind of trying to you know figure out uh, fi- finding documents and. Um, I thought it was really interesting to, uh, to see him kind of unravel, like why the uh, the Leibowitz documents were so important to this order. Um, and then also, like, I actually kind of went in expecting it to be more of a um, of like a, a kind of deeply religious novel. Um, and it, and it wasn't really at all like, just a presentation of you know uh, what 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 a religious order might be like after the apocalypse. So I enjoyed that too. Right. So here's uh, one of my favorite parts from. Um from Fiat Homo. Uh, now six century, now after six centuries of darkness, the monks still preserved this memorabilia, studied it, copied it, recopied it, and patiently waited. At the beginning, in the time of Leibowitz, it had been hoped, even anticipated as probable, that the fourth or fifth generation would begin to want its heritage back. But the monks of the earliest days had not counted on the human ability to generate new cultural inheritance in a couple of generations, if an old one is utterly destroyed, to generate it by virtue of lawgivers and prophets, geniuses or maniacs, through a Moses or through a Hitler, or an ignorant but tyrannical grandfather, a cultural inheritance may be acquired between dusk and dawn, and many have been so acquired, but the new culture was an inheritance of darkness. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, it, because here's what he's doing is, I mean, it's, it's very, the writing is very pretty. <laughs> it's, it's really great prose. Yeah. But in a way, he's breaking one of the cardinal rules of writing where, you know, the show don't tell thing. He's definitely mm-hmm. telling you the point. But it's so well done, I think he gets away with it, you know, throughout this book. But, um, I don't know, how do you guys feel about how the themes are conveyed this early in the novel, Brian? You know, I, I do think he gets away with that. And it is, as you say, it's, it's a little bit, um, you know, it's more direct than most writers would do. Um, but also, I mean, I think it kind of goes with the kind of religious, um, um, uh, you know, context as well, that that's one of the reasons he kind of gets away with it. Um, but it's also like, I mean, for, for me, it's like, I, I, I think when you start reading it, you think, oh, this is going to be a story about kind of monks in the future. And it, it is, but it's also like, you know, if this is a Catholic order of monks who have a saint named Leibowitz, yeah. And so there's this kind of amazing kind of, um, you know, kind of Jewish um, center of, of what's going on for them. And, and it just kind of really, you know, it, it, it both kind of is referring back to the way in which Christ was the king of the Jews, but also kind of questioning the whole way in which the Catholic Church works, I think. Yeah, I, I love the contradictions in it throughout. The, the yeah. legal thing caught me, too. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of those contradictions. That's one of the things that makes it, I think, such a fun read and, and works so well. Well, and and I, I can only say, I mean, I have, you know, I grew up in a primarily Jewish family, and, and you know, I don't know anything about Catholicism. So mm-hmm. I, I really don't know how this book reads for a Catholic, but I'm told that uh, Catholics really, really dig this book. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there was a positive review on a on a Catholic website that I found too. Yeah. So you know, I think I, I don't think the the Catholics um, seem to really connect to this book, and yeah, and and uh, I don't pretend to understand why. Uh, I can't really comment on that, but I know that Miller considered himself a Catholic. Well, you know, throughout his yeah. Life. yeah. Well, I mean, he's Catholic in the way that someone like Flannery O'Connor is Catholic, where. <laughs> you know, there's there's a pretty complex relationship to the Catholicism, yeah. which I think of as real, you know, real and and intense. And you know, I, I I I'm not at all questioning his faith as a Catholic, but I just think it's, you know, he's not Catholic in the way that, you know, um, <laughs> in, in a simple way, I guess. Yeah, I I I did I didn't fi- I didn't find the book to be um, you, you know, to, to be really pushing to pushing a religious you know agenda. No, not at all. Um, so I like that too. And I, I, I kind of thought just just going into it, given you know, given the title of it, and given the fact that it was from the fifties, that it was going to have more of a religious agenda to it. So it was, uh, it was a nice surprise that it didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's totally true. So um, the the second part, um, Fiat uh, Lux, uh, we we get into more of. What the actual the order taking the links to uh, keep Saint Leibowitz's papers alive and and you know what's what's going into that. Um, one of my favorite parts um, on my I'm reading the for those of you watching on for those of you that are on the YouTube version of this. Um, I got this really cool Greg Press edition of Canical for Leibowitz from 
1980, and it has this hilarious drawing of a monk with a nuclear mushroom cloud behind him in a spaceship. <laughs> and um, it has a, an introduction, by the way, uh, by Norman Spinrad. So, oh. And uh, Norman Spinrad's, uh, mostly what he was talking about is how amazing of a thing that Canical for Leibowitz was a work of somebody, you know, that most science fiction masterworks are inside a bibliography from, you know, greats like Arthur C. Clarke, Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, uh, Ursula Le Guin that have entire careers, you know, to look back on and how the canical is this like singular lightning bolt from, from this author. But anyways, back to, uh, Fiat, uh, Lux. Um, I love this part on, on my edition. It's page 206. Tomorrow a new prince shall rule. Men of understanding, men of science shall stand behind his throne, and the universe will come to know his might. His name is truth. His empire shall encompass the earth, and the mastery of man over earth shall be renewed. A century from now men will fly through the air in mechanical birds. Metal carriages will race along the roads of man, man-made stone. There will be buildings of 30 stories, ships that will go under the sea, and machines to perform all works. Uh, so I really love that he didn't have technology just coming back right away. That it was this process that uh, millennia is passing, that hundreds of years are going on. And, and even though this part of the novella is is on the dawn of this new age, I like that he gave technology the space, right, to grow. Um, yep. I don't know how do you, Brian? How did you um, how did you feel about the second part? Yeah, I I like the, the the second part. Strikes me as a kind of like conflict between old ideas and new ideas, and it's a lot about power struggles and a lot about the relationship of the. Um, monastery to kind of the larger world and, and, and where that, you know, seems to be going. And that, that's really intriguing to me. I mean, I think that's an area that science fiction is often, um, d- dealing in. I mean, this, this notion of two societies or parts of, of a society kind of clashing up against one another. Um, but it does it in a really interesting way. And there is like, I mean, throughout, I, I think what feels the most kind of 60-ish about this book to me is just that thread of nuclear um, destruction, um, both past and and future, that kind of hangs over the book. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I love the kind of conversations in the middle part um, where they're, they're, you know, they're trying to figure out what to do with the artifacts and refusing to let them be moved and things like that, and, and then where that all goes. I like that they call them memorabilia, too. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of a neat thing. Ian, how did you feel about this second part? I think, I think the second part might have actually been my favorite part because I loved all of the, um, the, the sort of, uh, I guess, you know, uh, tension within the monastery. Um, and then also the, uh, the, um, I mean, overall political tension in the world as a whole, too. Yeah. Well, and I think it's really a testament to this novel that here's this huge part that's just about a bunch of monks in a monastery and it, to me, this book was never boring. Uh, yeah. This book never dragged for me. I've seen a couple of reviews where people are like, whoa, this is some slow-paced stuff, and I'm just like, I did not get that at all. I didn't think it was slow-paced. No, me neither. I, was, I wasn't bored. No. 
yeah, it, it, it worked for me through, throughout and, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but then, uh, we shoot ahead in time, uh, with, um, the third part, which I already showed that I'm not good at pronouncing, uh, Fiat Voluntunus Tua. Um, all right. Um, if Anthony was here, he'd be laughing at me. Um, but this last part is definitely the most science fiction of the three. This is the most traditional science fiction. And, um, it's funny because I'm currently rewatching all of Battlestar Galactica right now. And, uh, so I can't help but notice that it has the exact same theme with the, uh, the repeating of, you know, what has happened will happen again kind of thing that is such a huge part of the theme of the, the new Battlestar Galactica. And I almost wonder if any of the writers there were a fan of Canical for Leibowitz. It's very possible because it is such a popular science fiction novel over time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but this part, I, I, this is where he gets a little bit more experimental. He has entire sections where it's just, you know, reporters and defense ministers, um, quotes, and it comes straight out of news conferences and things like that. And so the writing is very different, and but it's definitely where, as we know, because now we know how he wrote it, that he was tying the themes together. And I think, uh, you know, this part is where, you know, he's obviously spelling it out a little bit more, but for me, um, I, I did like the second part, but uh, for me as a science fiction fan, uh, I definitely loved everything that was going on in this third part. I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, Brian, let's start with you, Brian. Like, how did you feel about the third act of this book? Well, you know, I like it, and I think it kind of brings everything together in an interesting way. I do think that... Um, it, it, uh, the third act doesn't, I, I've been thinking a lot about the fact these are published separately. And I could see each of those first two parts kind of as separate things that I could read. And the third one really does gain a lot from having the, the other parts there. Um, so it both nicely wraps things up. It seems a little more dependent on it. Um, going back to Battlestar Galactica, I do think one of the writers for Battlestar Galactica, um, is, was in fact a Mormon. There's a lot of weird Mormon references, so I think there's a religious thing, and 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 it may just be analogous, but it may also be that he was a fan of Canical for Leibowitz. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, definitely. I mean, they they definitely had the same theme of the uh, what will happen will happen again was yeah. was you know basically the last scene of the whole show, and it was controversial too because a lot of people didn't like that. Yeah, um, I personally. Fairly commending in this in the novel too, you know, and in a lot of ways, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, um, Ian, when when you got to this last part, did you expect it to go to space? Because I didn't. <laughs> no, I, I didn't expect it to go to space, and um, I, I appreciated that after like the the, fir- the first two parts sort of have like these kind of like bleak endings. A little bit, and I appreciated that this one had some hope at the end, which is, I, I feel like it's more rare for post-apocalyptic uh-huh. uh, works nowadays to have to have a glimmer of hope. I, yeah. I think it's like what, the, the Mad Max Road Warrior effect yeah. sort of thing. Well, it's kind of a glimmer, but you also think, well, they're just going to go somewhere else and repeat the whole thing over again. Yeah, it kind of leaves it open. Right? It does leave it open, for sure, yeah. Yeah, but they're, they're like loading the children on the spaceship, and yeah, so it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it seemed hopeful, but... 
Well, you know, that that was a theme um, that you just brought up, Ian. It was a big in the 50s for Philip K. Dick was, you know, every book ended with, we're going to go to the frontier and everything's going to be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, ev- like, almost every single book of, of Dick's in the 50s ended with, like, you know, everything will be great when we get to the colonies, <laughs> right? And, uh, but, but I do, that, that is really a good point, Ian, is that, uh, the hope at the end is something that also I didn't expect to have, uh, when I was coming towards the end of this book. So. Yeah. Especially the first part in this book, I remember like at the end of the first part, you know, I won't give any spoilers, but, uh, but yeah. that kind of is like, it, it was so sudden. <laughs> We're <Yeah>. spoiling. <laughs> So, no, it's, it's interesting because I think my favorite part is that first part because um, for various reasons, and, and, and Ian's is the second and yours is yeah. the third. Yeah, that is kind of funny how that worked out. Yeah, well, there's something for everyone in this book, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I liked all the political intrigue in the second one. Yeah, 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 that stuff is great, I think. Yeah, and, and, the, and the tension in the monastery, too, when they're, you know, they're calling each other heathens. And- yeah. Yeah, well, and, and I don't, I, you know, I'm really interested in, in how, um, how the three parts work differently for each of us. I do think that's really funny. Um, I definitely liked all of it altogether. I think from top to bottom is an incredible book, but I think the way it, it, it can hit people in different ways just because it is three, three, three fundamentally mm-hmm. different stories that work together. Yeah. Um, and, and I do think that that's really cool. Um, so let's, um, let's get into a little bit more about the, the reaction and the, and, and then we'll, um, talk about the themes. Uh, it, it, because I'm, I'm interested in your opinions on, on these different reviews that came out over time and how you feel about them. At the time that the book was released, the New Yorker referred to this book as, um, uh, re- referred to Miller as a dull, ashy writer guilty of heavyweight irony. <laughs> yeah, that's rough. <laughs> Whew. Um, and then I'll read a couple more, and then we'll just talk about, uh, I'll get your take on how these people felt about things. Time Magazine said, Miller proves himself chilling, chillingly effective at communicating a kind of post-human lunar landscape of disaster. But dubbed it into, but, and then they called it, uh, I'm sorry, I, I messed up the quote, but then they said it was intellectually lightweight, uh, mm. which is interesting yeah. that they said. But then a decade. I, I don't think I'd call it that. <laughs> no, no. But then a decade later, Time Magazine had a different reviewer who called it an extraordinary novel, even by literary standards, which have flourished by word of mouth for a dozen years. So mm. Time Magazine has a one negative review and one positive review. Mm. I'm going to wait for the third review to break the tech. <laughs> right. So it, it got kind of reevaluated. Oh, yeah. certainly. Certainly. At the time, Floyd Gale of Galaxy Magazine said it has many passages of remarkable power and deserves the widest possible audience. Mm. And perhaps my favorite review, in 1978, Carl Sagan listed Canical for Leibowitz um, among the stories that are so, ta- he said, quote, this story is so totally constructed, so rich and accommodating details of unfamiliar society that they swept me along before I even had a chance to be critical. Mm. 
So, so those are some of the reviews that were out there. I, man, I have a hard time believing that somebody thought, even at the beginning, the first time that they read this, that it was intellectually dealt. Yeah, yeah. Just no, <laughs> I can't see that at all. Yeah, but uh, so I, I guess um, you know now that we've kind of talked about like the the whole thing. Um, let me start with Ian. Uh, your thoughts as a whole piece, uh, a canical for Leibowitz, all three parts as a whole novel. How do you feel about this novel? Um, well, I, I really, you know, liked it overall, and I thought it, it, it earns its, um, I think, you know, place in sci-fi, you know, in the, in the pantheon of sci-fi classics, if you will. Um, I didn't, like, and like I was saying earlier, I didn't find it as dated other than, you know, what Brian said about the most 60th, 1960th thing being the, you know, the, the, the threat of thermonuclear annihilation. Um, but, you know, it may, maybe it wasn't until after stuff like, you know, Dr. Strangelove had come out and movies like that, that, you know, people kind of took it more seriously. And there was, there was you know, more apocalyptic literature um, coming out. But, yeah, overall, I thought it was really good. Um, I, I found the prose to be a little bit um, um, dense, but not in a bad way. It just um, it made me read it more carefully and kind of slow, slow down a little bit. And I had to take breaks at certain points to make sure I was uh, picking it up, um, you know, you know um, comprehending as much as I could. Um, but yeah, I, I did not find it, uh, you know, intellectually weak at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian, uh, Canical for Leibowitz is a whole piece. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I don't think it's intellectually weak. I mean, the, 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 it is funny that certain books just, you know, don't quite connect with people originally, or certain people anyway. I, I kind of see that that argument as, as kind of uh, literary snobbism. Yeah. And so the, it's significant that the reviewer from Galaxy really gets it. And then it takes the literary establishment, you know, time and to 10 years to catch up or 12 years, whatever you said it was. Um, I think it really works well overall. And, and, uh, I do agree it, it holds up really well and, and, uh, you know, is, is pretty remarkable as a novel. And I think it's more complex than, than, you know, the original reviewers were really thinking about. I do agree that some of the language is, is, uh, um, Ornate sometimes, but but I don't find that problematic or over. So, yeah. Well, and I think part of it is is that you know it has these really intense themes, which you know I want to talk a little bit about too. And you know, for a novel that was written by a, an author who doesn't have a bibliography that we can research. Yeah. Um, there was a um, an academic named David Samuelson who he wrote his dissertation at DePauw uh, in 1969 on Canical for Leibowitz, and he went through and researched all the uh, short stories that Miller wrote in his entire short career. And it's a really interesting essay. You can find it online if you look up David Samuelson, Canical for Leibowitz. i found the whole essay and you know i think he talked a lot about the cyclical theme was something that miller had written about many times before and so he has this Mm -hmm. quote the cyclical theme of technological progress and regress is the foundation stone on which (coughs) canada Leibowitz is built in is present in much of miller's early writing too two short stories foretell the complete collapse of our civilization or race 
Two concern political stalemates in which technological progress is at least slowed, and five more of his stories include directly the theme of rebuilding society after the collapse of technology. Hmm. So th these were themes that he was working on. Um, at, you know, and I think this one won the Hugo, right? And w was addressing these issues, but I don't really know of a book that did the recurring theme before before this. And I'm not even sure if I'd know one that did it as well after either. Mm -hmm. Except for, I mean, obviously we talked about, you know, I'm not saying Battlestar Galactica did it as well. <laughs> it didn't. But it did the same theme. Um, I'm just wondering, have you seen this have either of you seen this theme before in science fiction? Uh, not not much. I'm I'm trying to think if there are instances and and really, I mean I I think what happens is is you know you you kind of move from uh, focusing on a particular character to focusing on just the whole development of a society, and that's a pretty complicated thing to pull off. I can't think of any other good example of it. I mean, I think there are people who've done it, but not really good examples of it. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine, I don't know how you feel about this, Brian, but uh, as a writer, I can't imagine structuring a novel with this many themes, but not even having a, a, a main protagonist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, that's kind of a magic trick. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, I mean, Leibowitz is a MacGuffin who's throughout the whole thing, but but really, um, that's the connective tissue is these papers, not, not yeah. really a character. Right. Yeah. And that's, I don't know, I don't, I can't think of any other books that did that either, really, successfully anyways. Um, but. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know, um, as far as the, you know, Ian, I don't know um, how you feel about the themes and 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 um, the technology. Are you? I mean, obviously, you would you would be interested in checking out some of his short stories. I know I want to. When I hear this list of he did this five times, he did this four times. Yeah, it really makes me want to seek out those those other short stories. I don't know. Did you feel the same way? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I definitely read more about him. I actually thought this was the only thing he'd ever done. Like, I didn't realize he had other stories too. Yeah, I don't know if he has a collection out. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look at Powell's or something. Hmm. But um, another quote um, from the uh, from the very long essay <laughs> by Donaldson uh, for the techno. Um, Phobic Miller, unlike, or Technophelic Miller, who was an engineer, unlike Technophobic C.S. Lewis, the direct opposition of science and religion won't do, at least if not the means of downgrading science and technology. They represent for him the best that we can do today and in the foreseeable future. When it comes to knowledge and concrete achievement, mechanical for Leibowitz, however, religion suggests a kind of wisdom, traditional, irrational, humane, which knowledge alone cannot reach. And basically what he's saying is that he saw, he didn't see religion and technology as being, you know, against, you know, that they couldn't work yeah. together. 
Mm-hmm. I, I definitely got that from this book too. That, that he kind of he showed him intermingling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, for me, I mean, I grew up with a father who's a physicist and who also was Mormon, and so I had this this weird common. You know, I, I saw a lot of people who could balance those things together in a way that was effective. But that's really interesting because, uh, you know, I think people would not. I didn't know that, Brian, that your father was a physicist. That's really cool. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah he, he, he was the one who turned me on to all sorts of science fiction. And I think it's, you know, I think it has to do with his interest in, in science and physical world. And you said this was on his shelf, right, this book? Um, yeah, he, both him and my mom read it. And, and I just remember them talking about it. And it was on the shelf. And I, I had like a little, they had a little paperback copy of it. And I just picked it up and read it. Mm, that's really cool. I, I liked it a lot. Yeah, it was kind of in that period where you know, when you're a certain age, you're a kid, and it's fun to read things that people think are probably too hard for you. Yeah, I, I did that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that's uh, common for us, like who are very <laughs> serious nerds about all this stuff. Yeah. Um, um, I thought it was great, and the last two books that I read for the Hugo series before this one, uh, I really did not like. So it was really exciting to read this one and, and thinking of this within the context of not just, um, as an individual book, but as a piece of, of the Hugos in the sixties, if you look at the books that were winning around this time, this was the book that won the year after starship troopers. Yeah. So think about that for a second. Yeah. <laughs> um, Robert Heinlein wrote Starship Troopers because he was mad when he saw an anti-nuclear ad in the newspaper, and it pissed him off so bad that he, he in a fury, wrote Starship Troopers. Yeah. yeah. This is kind of the polar opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they won back-to-back years. Right. And, um, you know, it's really interesting because we see a lot of now it seems like with the whole controversy with the sad puppies and those things that they try to make out this this world that the science fiction is very singular in the way that we view politics and i think it's really cool to look at you know those two books being back to back yeah 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 i i like that i i i like thinking of it as a corrective to how the award was given the year before <laughs> Right, right, for real. And um, and if you look at th- there was this was a very strong category for a while for a while for a couple years, and that's one of the reasons why I think um, Fritz Lieber's The Wanderer and um, uh, you know was was such a painful one for people to accept because in the years right before it, you had Stranger in a Strange Land, Star- yeah. Starship Troopers, Canical for Leibowitz, and Man in the High Castle. Yeah, all in this block together <laughs> that won the award, and I think in this early block in the '60s, I don't know how you guys feel, but to me, Canical for Leibowitz is the strongest of that bunch, even over Man in the High Castle. As a- I, I agree with that, I think. Yeah, right. I, I, I can, I can agree with that too. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Man in the High Castle too, but um, me too. But, but I, I, th- I think you know, if if, if we're talking, uh, you know, doing a critical debate, I think Canical for Leibowitz would probably win over just on strength of writings, if nothing else. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and I think 
the thing about that makes th those books are kind of tangentially connected in, in a sense thematically is that, and a lot of people forget because they just, they want to view Man in the High Castle as just the, oh, look, it's scary, it's Nazis, and they took over. But really the theme of Man in the High Castle is the untrustworthiness of history. Yeah. Right? And how history is another, an alternate reality that, that perhaps we travel in and out of to a degree based on our perceptions. Yeah. It's a huge part of what was going on with Man in the High Castle. So I think the scope of history is the, the two things that connect uh, Man in the High Castle and Canical for Leibowitz. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I uh, really appreciate on that level. Now, when we get into the whole 60s, I will say, spoiler alert for this for the series. I don't know when we're going to release this one in order of the series, but um, I still think Stand on Zanzibar is the best science fiction novel of the sixties. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't read it yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, that. Um, I read that for this series already this year. It was the nineteen sixty nine winner, and I definitely, as much as I love Canical for Leibowitz, and I did really think long and hard which is better. <laughs> Stand on yeah. Zanzibar, our canical for Leibowitz, and personally, I went with um, with uh, Stand on Zanzibar. I think is slightly better. Um, uh, just the predictive nature of it is, is something. But the last thing I want to talk about before, and and this is where I really, you know, hope you guys will go off, and I'll kind of like let you guys talk this this one out is. I found it interesting when I saw a lot of the retro. There's a lot of people that were doing Hugo retrospectives. There was one in the Guardian, mm -hmm. and um, I really found the guy, the guy's take on Canical for Leibowitz. Like his article about the Wanderer, Fritz Lieber, was hilarious, and I agreed with every word of it. Um, but his take on on this one, I, I couldn't get. It. His name is Sam Jordanson, and he said the sleight of hand satirized by Michael Chabon in this. In, he was talking about Michael Chabon who did an essay about The Road by uh, Cormac McCarthy. Mm -hmm. And he said in his excellent essay, instead of blackening McCarthy's good name with a science fiction brand to words such as parable or fable, he was talking about how people won't even consider The Road by Cormac McCarthy science fiction. And then he said, thus by separating McCarthy from science fiction roots, these reviewers do him and his predecessors a disservice. Is the is the road and its predecessor um, is the road really so very separate from John Christopher's Death of Grass, John Wyndham's Day of the Triffids, um, or On the Beach, um, or Boris Strusky's uh, I, I can't, I'm terrible with names Stalker has it really propelled them far beyond by McCarthy's deathless prose? More to the point. Is it any better than William Miller Jr.'s Canical for Leibowitz? Mm. And this idea that um, the road is literature, but Canical for Leibowitz isn't, into it, that it's considered science fiction in the past, like, I don't know. I think Canical for Leibowitz is every bit as much literature as The Road or On the Beach or Alas Babylon, and I think it needs to be reassessed in the more highbrow versions of this post-apocalyptic fiction that came out in the 50s. Uh, Ian, what do you think? 
well, I mean, I, 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 you're talking to a librarian, so I, I, I find value in almost any anything. I mean, you know, I do, I do use I read, you know, YA literature. And I think there's value in that. I think, um, but yeah, the, the literary snobbery towards sci-fi. I mean, it's, it still goes on today. Um, I mean, so you know, I would agree with his assessment that it that it, it, it should be, um, you know, evaluated higher. I mean, I, but I always thought like that this was. Uh, more of a classic among uh, not not just science fiction fans, but you know, I mean, people, people outside of that, like you were saying, like the cat, you know, Catholics seem to uh, really like it. Um, so, I mean, I, I do think there's probably more of an audience out there uh, for it, other than just you know, diehard sci-fi fans like us. So, Ian, um, is this a book that you're going to be recommending as a library? I know you do mostly do youth librarian stuff, or, or at least you used to. Is this one that you're gonna? Start trying to put in the hands of. Uh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I definitely recommend it to people looking for, um, you know, classic sci-fi or, or post-apocalyptic literature. Um, but but you know, I'm 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 not at all a, a literary snob, uh, like like uh, like the New Yorker guy from the fifties, or you know, <laughs> the, the, the quote you read us earlier. I mean, I, like I said, I try to find value in anything, and so I mean, if I've got you know someone in front of me and I'm trying to recommend books to them, and I think like the. That they might like this book based on what they've they're looking for, what they said they read before. I would totally recommend it in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. Brian, how do you think this fits into that um, classier, quote unquote, classier genre mm -hmm. of of uh, non of post apocalyptic fiction? Well, I think it's better than a lot of the quote unquote classier. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's that, um, but but I, I do think you know it, it's a tricky thing and. I think what happens sometimes is that just people's ideas of the way in which genre works get kind of outdated. And so, you know, McCarthy kind of objected when he was nominated for a science fiction prize um, and didn't want to be called science fiction. I think asked to have his name removed um, from consideration, his book removed from consideration. I just think that's, he's just an old dude. And I think for him... I, I, I like it, much respect. But. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I love Cormac McCarthy, and I, you know, I did the address for the Cormac McCarthy Society a couple of years ago. I'm super big fan of his work, but I also think he doesn't understand um, how our sense of, of, of genre has changed over the years. He's a great writer, but he also, like, that kind of knee-jerk reaction against science fiction is not, not productive, not good for him necessarily. And it is like I do see post-apocalyptic work on both sides of the literature and genre divide as really operating well together and and having a lot to say to one another. So it would be great if more people read Miller and uh, you know people on the literary side especially read him. So yeah, I mean you know this, this is the Dickheads podcast and Philip K. Dick didn't get recognition until after you know long after he was gone. Either. Yeah, yeah. Finally waking up to him. Right. The same thing. Yeah. Well, and that's partially because he wrote for for every man in the high castle, every time out of joint, um, you know, he wrote a um, cosmic puppets or uh, <laughs> yeah, the E two. Yeah, clans, clans of the Alphane Moon, which um, I, I liked, <laughs> but. Well, I kind of didn't. Um, yeah, yeah. That episode's coming out soon, so uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself. But uh, you know, he he definitely played in both sandboxes, and I think you know, I think that's part of one of the reasons why Dick 
you know, that happened to him. Brian, uh, you've written post-apocalyptic fiction. Uh, I have. One of my, one of my favorites of the last couple of years being, um, immobility. Uh, was this book, was that book influenced by Kenneth for Leibowitz? And do you think? Um, you know, I, I don't know because I hadn't reread it when I, when I, um, wrote immobility, but it, I think it may have been behind it in some ways. I mean, there's little moments that when I was rereading it, I thought about certainly like the sensibility of it was something that was important to me. There's actually another book that I've been working on that, uh, that I was working on that I kind of put aside for a while, but that I, I'm only realized after reading it that it was really influenced by Cantical from Leibowitz that, that goes through different times and things like that. And, you know, I think that's where I got it from. Finish that book, Brian, because I want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> in my best. Yeah. yeah I, I would say there's echoes of Cantical for Leibowitz and, like, the black humor and immobility, too. Oh, yeah. I think that's whether it was intentional or not. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely, we have a similar kind of sense of humor, I think. So that's probably the reason I liked it um, when I first read it. So, yeah. Yeah, and for any dickheads out there, if you haven't read Immobility, um, I think I compared it at the time to The Road Meets THX 1138. Uh-huh. I, I think you recommend it highly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're both big fans. Um, and, um, but just to, to wrap up, uh, uh Canical for Leibowitz, um, uh, I'm going to read the book that he wrote. So the last thing that happened in Miller's life is that um, he started to write a sequel 35 years later. It was the first time he'd written anything in 35 years. And he wasn't able to finish it, but he left notes, and, and author Terry Bisson finished it. Uh, so it's out there. Um, and I was at first kind of scared to read it because a lot of people said it just, you know, it didn't live up to it. And... I, I don't know. What do you guys feel? Are 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 you um? Do you want to leave it alone, or are, are you going to try to read it someday? You know, I, I'm going to start with the stories, and then I'll probably go on to that if I if if the stories aren't too discouraging. Yeah, the same. I, I'd I'd be interested in uh in, in taking a look at it maybe. Um, but you know, like I've always kind of shied away from the non uh, Frank Herbert Dune books, so it's yeah. I hate to sound bad like that, but just whenever an author's stuff gets finished by someone else, it's, yeah, it, make, it makes me wary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think sometimes there's a special relationship that makes it work uh, for the right author and the right project. But, yeah, with the Dune books, I think um, Kevin J. Anderson, who dictates all of his books while walking on hikes, is not the person to be finishing Dune. <laughs> Yeah. I'm just hoping you're you're just gonna read it and let us know. Yeah, um, I will probably read the sequel eventually, but um, uh, I definitely think we got. Yeah, I got to get down on those stories and see if there's a collection. Um, but I definitely and I want to read the the Venus Plus X that was nominated the same year. Yeah, uh, because I think that that one sounds really interesting. The- uh, Theodore Sturgeon, of course, is 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 really yeah. a great great writer. Um, so, um, Ian, uh, um, where can people, people find you or do you hide or do you not want people to find you? Um, (laughs) Uh, yeah, I actually don't really have social media much these days. Um, yeah, I, I, maybe I should get back into it. I kind of took a long, uh, detox from it for a while. (laughs) Well, at least, uh, writer, writer, reader, Twitter is pretty good, but are you on good, you're on Goodreads, aren't you? 
What's that? You're on Goodreads, aren't you, Ian? Yes, I, oh, that's right. Yes, of course. I am on Goodreads, totally. So you can totally look me up on Goodreads. Yeah, Ian Duncanson on Goodreads. Yeah. And, uh, because I think that's, we're all readers here. So, and, mm-hmm. uh, Ian reads good stuff. So I think, uh, you're a good follow on Goodreads. Um, and, uh, Brian, uh, you recently put out a short story collection, which, yeah. uh, uh, do you want to tell the folks about it? No. Um, it's a collection called uh, Song for the Unraveling of the World. And uh, it's kind of, I don't know, uh, uh, kind of grim stories, but funny stories, I suppose. I don't know how to describe it exactly. I think it's very body-themed. Uh, you got yeah. you got a lot of body stuff going on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there it is. <laughs> there I am. Right. Um, well, yeah, it is, uh, it is a really great collection. I think... Um, um, not to uh, expand your head too much, but I think you're one of the best short story writers we got going um, in oh, this day you. and age. Um, and no, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think it's a really important uh, work. And I've got a review up on my blog of uh, Songs for the Unraveling of the World. Um, and I really think it's it's definitely going to be in my top ten this year. Um, and which is, there's, this is a good year. This, this top 10 yeah. this year. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff this year. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Between, um, Cody Goodfellows on America and, uh, James Reich's song, um, My Enemies Sing, mm-hmm. um, were two of my favorites. Really great this year and definitely ones that people should look out for. Um, so I just really appreciate you guys, uh, joining me today. Is there anything, uh, last, um, either one of you want to say about Canicle for Leibowitz? You've got the mic, Brian. Uh, I just, I think all I want to say is just read it. I think it's worth reading and checking out. We've been very careful not to give certain things away that are kind of amazing in the book. So, yeah, I, I would, I'd say the same thing to people too. Because I mean, I get, um, I'm working in a library. I get, I mean, even, and even a lot of my fellow librarians and, um, and you know, people in the field, I find they go, oh, you know, you get, you get that that old science fiction and it. You know, it tends to have this, like, some kind of, like, cringy racism or, like, homophobia or, like, yeah. it just seems really dated. But I would say this book um, does not really feel dated, and I would definitely recommend it. It, it still holds up. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, there's some certain books, like I Am Legend, for example, doesn't seem dated at all when you read it. And then there's just the random mention of the nuclear war of 1976, and then you're like, whoa. <laughs> uh, little things like that don't bother me so much. But, you know, some, sometimes some of the cringy stuff, like, and I mean, I also, you know, realize I'm reading books from, you know, 50, 60 years ago at the same time. But, you know, some of the cringy stuff um, makes me hesitate recommending it to everybody sometimes. Yeah. Totally, totally. But, uh, yeah, I, I think for the stuff that if you stuck around and the stuff that we are carefully trying to avoid, um, I think, uh, you know, I think that the themes in this are, are so strong that, um, it, it just, it, it really comes through. There's nothing that, that, that really feels dated about it. I love Canical for Leibowitz. And like I said, other than maybe Stand on Zanzibar, this is one of my favorite books of the sixties that I've read. So, awesome! I've got to go read Stand on Zanzibar. Yeah, I've, I've got. I've, I've I've only read Cheap Look Up by him. Uh, really? Have you read any Bruner before, Brian? I, I've read the Sheep Look Up, but that's it. I like that quite a bit. Yeah, I'm on. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, Stand on Zanzibar is definitely thematically connected to sh- the Sheep Look Up, and yeah. 
I know uh, most people consider Sheep Look Up, Stan and Zanzibar, and Shockwave Rider as as like kind of his three masterpieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and Shockwave Rider kind of predicts the internet, but um, you will be blown away by how much is prescient in Stan on Zanzibar. Trust me. Thanks, Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks, David. All right. Hey, and uh, thank you guys for joining us. I'm sorry about all the technological difficulties we had, but that's the theme of the book, right? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So uh, thanks for joining us tonight. And uh, dickheads, keep it paranoid. Stay paranoid.